Every year, Open Doors publishes the World Watch list to focus the world's attention on those 50 countries where Christians are persecuted the most. These are the five where the persecution of Christians is most severe. Pakistan. Christians in Pakistan continue to experience massive violence in the form of attacks and assaults. Moreover, blasphemy laws give Islamists in the country the opportunity to put Christians under massive pressure. If a Christian is accused of insulting Islam in any way, then his life is in danger. If he's not sentenced in court, in the event of his release, Islamists will follow and try to kill him. Sudan. Historically, Islam is deeply rooted in Sudanese society. Under the authoritarian rule of Omar al-Bashir and his party, there is no rule of law. Christians are sometimes arrested under suspicion of espionage. Some church buildings have been demolished, and recently, the government put enormous pressure on pastors and church leaders to place their churches under government control. Somalia. If a Muslim decides to become a Christian here, he runs the risk of being persecuted to death by his family and local rulers. In addition, Al-Shabaab fighters are specifically looking for Christians. Whoever is suspected of being a Christian will be killed. Afghanistan. Islamists have made territorial gains and thus increased the high pressure on the few Christians there. As soon as it is known that someone has accepted Christianity, society can threaten death and sometimes family can even carry it out. North Korea. Surveillance of North Korea's own population has increased because of the country's continued self-isolation. Ownership of a Bible puts whole families in danger. Tens of thousands of Christians are imprisoned in labor camps and many are tortured to death. To Kim Jong-un and his regime, Christians are enemies of the state. At the same time, however, Christian churches are growing underground and the gospel is spreading in secret. So what you just saw was produced by a ministry called Open Doors Ministry. Every year they produce something called the World Watch List. What you just saw is the 2018 version. And in the World Watch List, Open Doors Ministry lists the uh, countries in the world where Christians are most endangered. The top countries where Christians are persecuted and targeted uh, specifically because they are Christians. And they do research each year. And here's some of the uh, conclusions they've come to. In 2018, 215 million Christians worldwide experienced high levels of persecution, which amounts to a one out of 12 Christians. North Korea, for the 17th consecutive year, uh, rates number one as the most dangerous country in the world to live if you are a Christian. Um, in 2018, 3,066 Christians were killed. Uh, 1,252 were abducted. 1,020 were raped or sexually harassed. And 793 churches were attacked. In eight of the top 10 countries known for Christian persecution, eight of the top 10, it's done by um, followers of Islam. 
who were persecuting Muslims who were persecuting Christians. So I read all this in preparation for tonight, and the question came into my mind, why? What is it with Christians? What is it about us that is so repulsive to so many, to the extent that they would want to kill us if we do not renounce our faith? Is it something about our personality? Is it the way we conduct ourselves? How do you explain such an extreme reaction to those who identify themselves with this Jesus Christ, who call themselves Christ ones, Christians? What's behind all this? I think the text before us tonight, just a few verses, will give an answer. Tell me if you think I'm on target as we go through this. It's John chapter 12. We'll just look at verses 9 to 11 tonight. John chapter 12. And here's what it says. The large crowd of the Jews then learned that he was there. Uh, so folks, the location of this is Jerusalem. I think you know that. The occasion was the uh, festival known as Passover. And the he who is in view here in verse 9 is none other than this very radical rabbi Jesus. And it says that the folks in the large crowd came not for Jesus' sake only, but that they might also see Lazarus, whom he raised from the dead. You can understand that. Folks, a, a man has been dead, entombed for four days. Suddenly, he's made alive by this Jesus. And he's walking around the streets of Jerusalem, the courtyards of the temple, and people who are coming... And they're coming from far and wide because Passover was one of the three major Jewish pilgrim feasts where folks would go up to Jerusalem to celebrate. And so the place is a buzz just under normal circumstances. But now they've heard about this resurrection at the hands of Yeshua, this rabbi who's not authorized even to be a rabbi by the rabbinical traditionalists. And they want to see not only Lazarus, but this Jesus to whom is attributed this remarkable, miraculous deed. Everything is abuzz in Jerusalem now during Passover. The uh, city is flooded with pilgrims, thousands from all over the place. And again, on top of it, there's this enthusiasm to see Lazarus, the man who was dead, and find Jesus who's responsible for it. But, verse 10, the chief priests planned to put Lazarus to death also because on account of him, many of the Jews were going away and were believing in Jesus. And you see, the chief priests would not have it. The people, Jewish people, were going away from them. And the chief priests couldn't handle the loss of popularity, influence, following, even wealth. And so they had to respond to the fact that many were leaving traditional Judaism, taking themselves out from under the umbrella of these rabbis who had controlled their life, and they were flocking to this Jesus who was offering them life, real life, not bondage. And the uh, religious leaders in Jerusalem, the chief priests, couldn't handle this. They were threatened by their loss of power and popularity. This really, really threatened them. Now, the chief 
priests were mostly members of a political party called the Sadducees. There were two main competing political parties then in Israel, just like we have two competing parties today. And just as our two don't get along, neither did they then, the Sadducees and the Pharisees really hated each other. The Sadducees were uh, the ones who composed most of the priesthood. The chief priests were mostly Sadducees. They were the aristocratic political party. They were rich. Uh, They were really liberal. And they uh, found the Romans to be strange bedfellows. Rome was controlling Israel at the time. Roman government established itself in Israel. But the Sadducees caved in, made compromises, and kind of worked out a deal with the Romans. And so the Romans bequeathed to them, in essence, governing authority over their own people. The Sadducees, though they were under Roman occupation, still were given the permission to control religiously and politically to govern their own people, the Jewish people. However, they could forfeit their position of authority at the drop of a hat. If there was any hint of social unrest or upheaval, which the Romans could interpret to be rebellion against the emperor, then they would immediately take away the authority they had given to the Sadducees. So can you see these religious leaders who should have been concerned about the spiritual well-being of the people allotted to their charge were not. They were only concerned about sustaining their own power and influence and not coming under Roman fire. And therefore, they were threatened by all that was going on. This enthusiasm was filling the atmosphere. People were, had heard of Jesus and they were, many were amazed by him. And this was the worst part. Some people actually believed in him and they couldn't stand for it. What he is doing and how the people are so, so clearly responding to him. But that could very much look to the Romans like a rebellion is starting. And the Sadducees feared that the Romans would then move in and the chief priests would lose their position of governmental authority. And that's why, that's why the Jewish leaders had a plan to get rid of Jesus. I can understand that. I think you can too. But here's the part I don't understand. I can understand why they wanted to murder Jesus. But why did they want to murder Lazarus? What did he do? And that's what it says here. They had a plan to murder Lazarus. What what did he do to warrant such a thing? That his own religious leaders, who he should have been able to trust, wanted to snuff out his life. Now, the Sadducees, you may remember, had a theological point of view. And it was this. When you die, you die. That's all she wrote. There's nothing after that. So this talk of life after death and resurrection, they denied it. And this uh, put them in conflict with the Pharisees, the other party. The Pharisees, being much more conservative, following their own Hebrew scriptures, found out, no, no, no. Uh, Death does not end things. There is eternity to face thereafter. So the Sadducees and the Pharisees were in fierce competition and conflict with one another. And now the Sadducees who denied the resurrection are in big trouble because around the streets of Jerusalem, people are witnessing one who was dead for four days and now is very much alive from death. 
And so Lazarus's presence, his mere presence, he didn't have to do anything. He didn't have to say anything. The mere fact that he was alive from the dead uh, upset them, disproved their theology, and they had to put him back in the grave. That's why they wanted to, that's why they wanted to kill Lazarus. He's proof that their theology is just all wrong. And so they were intent on destroying the evidence. He's exhibit A. Look what Jesus could do. And so they wanted to snuff out Lazarus's life for that, for that particular reason. So they wanted not only to murder Jesus, they wanted to murder Lazarus who had been touched by Jesus. See, the Lord singled out Lazarus for life and therefore those who rejected the Lord singled out Lazarus for death. And so we learned something about the persecution we just saw depicted in the video. Why does it happen? Folks, those who have been touched by Jesus, those whose lives now give evidence of the master's touch will be targeted by those who reject the master. That's the way it is. That's the explanation for persecution against Christians. As with the Sadducees, today, those who persecute Christians merely because they are followers of Jesus, they want to get rid of the evidence. All a Christian has to do is be there. And it upsets those who are running from Christ. The Christian reminds them of a God who is there, who is authoritative, who changed the life of the Christian, who is the one to whom we must give account. And so unbelievers want to get rid of the evidence largely today, and that's the reason for Christian persecution. Christians are evidence of new life and new values and new beliefs. I mean, in the workplace, you get into discussion about the sanctity of life. You share your view about abortion in the presence of people who are sharing theirs. And they've already labeled you. And they are offended by you. All you have to do is live out the Christian life. And I think you could expect some form of persecution. Christians are evidence of the presence of Christ. And people who are running from Christ don't want the evidence. But those who wish, you see, to retain mastery of their own lives, those who wish to be on the throne of their life, those who want to be their own gods, those who wish to be their own master, they want to snuff out the witness of those who remind them that Jesus is the real master. That's the reason for persecution of Christians. Lazarus was innocent, folks. <laughs> they could bring no charge against him, and yet they wished to kill him. Why? It's because he had become a threat and a vexation to them because they were running from the God, the Jesus who gave, them, who gave him life. So Lazarus is singled out to be the object of their special hatred for the reason that Lazarus was singled out to be the object of God's special love. And by the way, so too have you and I. There's a connection, if you study the Bible, between now, don't get offended by this word, divine election. I know we're fighting over these terms today. Please. <laughs> the Bible talks about election of all different kinds. Uh, and there is a connection. Those whom God chooses are going to be targets of persecution. That's always, 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 always the case. And so uh, Lazarus was, was targeted by persecution. And so... Uh, those who are intent on denying God's authority over them are repulsed by those 
who remind them of God's authority. <laughs> That's just the way it is. And, and so all Lazarus had to do was live. And in simply living, he's proving the authority and the power and the presence of Jesus. And so I think Lazarus, I'm guessing at this. Correct me if you think I'm overstepping my ground. I don't see any evidence of Lazarus being a great orator, a great speaker. In fact, I don't think there's any record in the Gospels of Lazarus's words ever being recorded. Now, this will give you something to do tonight. I really didn't study this out. So I may be wrong for the first time in 68 years. So check it out. I just don't, I don't remember reading anywhere in the Gospels where Lazarus said anything that's recorded. Of course he did, but his words were not recorded. And so we can't associate the, the, those who are interested in Lazarus with his speaking ability. I mean, that seems not to be the hallmark of, of who he was. And, and so what was it? Folks, it was the mere fact that he was alive from the dead that provided indisputable evidence that Jesus is real and that Jesus is Lord. Therefore, those on the run from Jesus wanted Lazarus dead. Can you see what's behind Christian persecution? Folks, listen, you and I know union with Christ leads to eternal life. But do you also know union with Christ may lead to death? Uh, the, the video and the statistics do not lie. Christians are persecuted because Christians are evidence of Jesus. And those who refuse Jesus want to destroy the evidence. That's what's behind. To sum up, uh, in a nutshell, Christian persecution, the followers of Christ are persecuted because of Christ. Quite a dogmatic statement, but I can prove it. Matthew chapter 5, verse 11. Listen, the Lord speaks here. Blessed are you when people insult you and persecute you and falsely say all kinds of evil against you. Now get this, because of me. Amen. See, uh, understand Christians are persecuted because of their identification with Christ. That's what the scripture teaches. I'm not making this up. So I want to ask you a question. Are we to conclude then that the real measure of whether or not you're a Christian is whether or not you're being persecuted for it? Can we conclude if you're not experiencing any kind of persecution, you may not be a devoted follower of the Lord Jesus? But let me answer my own question. Yes, I think we can conclude that. Let me read this to you. 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 12. Indeed, all who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will be, what? Persecuted. All who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. That's what it says. Now, hang on just for a second. You may be saying, well, then I'm in trouble because I kind of think I'm a Christian but I haven't really been persecuted, the likes of which were depicted in this video. Well, don't narrowly define persecution. Persecution may be physically extreme, consisting of mutilation, uh, sexual abuse, imprisonment, beatings, all the rest, for sure. But don't limit persecution just to extremes of physical abuse. We shouldn't define persecution only in terms of physical assault. It also entails verbal insult and things like that. And I'll tell you 
where I found this. Same verse, Matthew 5, verse 11. Jesus is speaking again. Blessed are you, look, when people insult you. Those are words. And then he said, blessed are you when people falsely say all kinds of evil against you. That's not a physical beating. Those are words. And so if you're a Christian and have experienced verbal insults or uh, someone in the workplace speaking ill of you, even saying uh, falsities about you behind your back, that is a form of persecution. So you are being persecuted. I understand it's not as severe as these who are uh, subject to being murdered and all the rest, but don't count yourself out. Something about you is showing, and people are responding to you sometimes negatively in the form of verbal insult, disrespect, and abuse. So here's the deal, folks. Whenever someone is put upon physically or verbally for his identification with Christ and adherence to his values, that one has been persecuted for Christ. Uh, I've never suffered physical harm or threat for being a Christian, but I remember one day when... uh, my mother's brother, uh, her younger brother, told us in a letter, uh, his sons are all rabbis, and my cousins, they're all rabbis. He wrote in a letter, my uncle, uh, this will be the last you will hear from me uh, because you are traitors, meshumadim. That means in Hebrew, you're a traitor. Uh, uh, he said, I consulted with the rabbis, meaning his own sons, uh, and they told us, we have to have a funeral for you, Frida, that's my mother, and you, Stuart. We have to have a funeral for you, considering you no longer be, to be alive to us. We got that letter. Well, man, that hurt. That's not a good letter to receive. But I didn't suffer physical harm. They didn't kill me or anything, or even threaten to. Nothing like that. Was I being persecuted for my faith? Yes, I was. And I'm going to tell you something. I didn't, uh, I wasn't thrilled about the whole idea, but it kind of did something inside of me. Uh, I was glad that I was suffering for identification with the one who suffered so much for me. That's kind of a compliment. I'm glad that my faith was not hidden from view. I'm glad I wasn't a secret service. I don't even know what that is, a secret service. Can you please tell me how you can contain Christ in you, the hope of glory? Now, you don't have to be the most bold street evangelist. I'm not telling, I'm not saying that, but if Christ is living out his life in you, and that's what happens when you accept him, your whole mindset, behaviors, lifestyle, recreational pursuits, use of money, I mean, everything changes. And eventually someone says, what is with you? Why don't you get drunk with me the way you used to? That's what a friend said to me one time. That's what he said to me. Knocked on my door in the military. He said, come on, it's time to go out. That's what we used to do almost every night. We would hit the bars and get wasted. But I became a Christian. The guy knocks on the door. He said, come on, Stuart, we're ready. There's a gang of guys. And uh, this is what we usually do. I said, no, I'm not going tonight. I was not very bold. I didn't want to share a bunch of stuff then. I didn't. I just wanted, I didn't want to go, and I wanted them to leave me. I'm not going there. Why not? But I just don't, I don't have a need. For, that's what I said. I don't have a need for that anymore. You don't have a need? They said, well, what? Did you get religion or something? That's what the guys, the guys I said, but I, no, I didn't get religion. And this is what I said. I got a personal relationship 
with Jesus Christ as my Lord and Savior. I mean, that came out of my mouth. Well, the boys went off and had a deal, and they never invited me to anything after that. <laughs> that didn't feel good. Is that a form of persecution? Yes, absolutely. I'm like, can I just tell you something? If you hadn't had any of those experiences in your life and claimed to be a Christian, what's up? All those who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. I got a letter from a close friend the other day who's going to Israel and he wants to share the gospel with these Jewish people. And he wants me to help him to find the offense-free way to share the gospel. <laughs> That's essentially what he was asking. I said, man, there, there is no such thing. Listen, the gospel has power to convert. And the gospel has power to harden the heart of somebody who refuses it. I mean, the only way to share an offense-free gospel is to dilute the gospel. To share a gospel which is no gospel at all. Nothing like that. I told them, go to Israel and spit it out. <laughs> they don't need friends there. They need the gospel. They need people who love them so much. Any people love them so much, they're willing to risk the friendship and the relationship. Take a hit. And I see my friend John right there. And John, this is why you should never come to church on Wednesday night. Because I just say things. I went to Israel with John. And one night, I stayed back in the comforts of the hotel. And John went out on the street in Israel with some of our group. And John, John made conversation with an orthodox young man. I mean, black hat, black everything, beard, the whole deal. <clears throat> And that guy was mad at John. I mean, angry, angry for who John belonged to and what, why John was there and all the rest. I'll save you a whole bunch of details, but probably 45 minutes later, they were walking down the street together and this guy invited John to, to his home on his next visit. Which, and that doesn't always go that way. Sometimes it ends with the anger and all the rest. I think God blessed John with this marvelous divine appointment. Uh, anyway, there is no smooth way. How do you look anybody in the eye who's on the run from God, who in their pride think that by the doing of the law they can win God's favor? How do you look that person in the eye? I don't care how smooth you are. Eventually you have to say, you're a sinner. You're not a good person. You've sinned in thought and word and deed. And God is holy. And you're accountable to him. And you don't have a religious leg to stand on. Could I offer to you Jesus, who took the hit for you? Could I do that? Now, folks, I don't know of a smooth, of, you know, a, a, an offense-free way to share I mean, people don't like to hear that. People are proud. I got it together. I'm not a sinner. People don't like to hear that. But there's no way to tell them except to tell them. And so if you do, the Bible says you run the risk of taking some hits. Now, listen, I got to emphasize this point. Do you know that not all Christian suffering is suffering for Christ? Some Christian suffering is due to sin. Christians still sin, right? We do. And uh, when we sin, this is why God hates sin. 
It does tremendous harm and damage to you and to the people around you. I'm not preaching it. I'm speaking from my, my experience. I'm a sinner like you. Uh, it doesn't work. God wants us to know. Those strategies to meet our own needs outside the will of God, they just don't work. And they bring consequences. Sin is an attempt to minimize our pain and increase our pleasure, but it does the opposite. It increases our pain and minimizes our pleasure. It does the rest. The only one who's pleased with our sin is Satan. He just loves it. So not all suffering that a Christian experiences suffering for Christ. Some is suffering for personal sin. In fact, Peter makes this real clear in a couple passages. Listen to a few. First Peter chapter two, verse 20. He says, for what credit is there if when you sin and are harshly treated, you endure it with patience. But if when you do what is right and suffer for it, you patiently endure it, this finds favor with God. See what he's saying? Here's it. First Peter 3, 17. For it is better if God should will it that, that, that you should suffer for doing what is right rather than for doing what is wrong. Can you see the difference? Sometimes we Christians suffer for doing what is wrong. 1 Peter 4.15, make sure, Peter says, that none of you suffers as a murderer or a thief or evildoer or a troublesome meddler. That is not the suffering which is part and parcel, uh, a parcel, part and parcel of identification with Christ. That's sin. So we Christians can suffer for sinful conduct. That's much different than suffering because of our devotion to Christ. And so we are exhorted to avoid the suffering that comes from our sinning, but we're also exhorted to accept the suffering that comes from our submitting to Christ. A big difference. And so we read, for instance, in Philippians chapter 1, verse 29, for to you it has been granted for Christ's sake, not only to believe in him, but also to suffer for his sake. You know, when you buy these little books, all the promises in the Bible, that one's not in there. <laughs> the people who put those together, can I tell you something? I don't like those books. Why don't you just read the Bible? The whole thing in context. But anyway, you get these little promise books. People want promises. They're, 90% of the time, they're taken way out of context. I don't go for that stuff at all. But the other thing I don't like about it, it's really edited. You know what's edit, edited out? Verses like this. All, like 2 Timothy, all those who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. Do you know that's a promise? Here's another promise. <laughs> for to you it has been granted for Christ's sake, not only to believe in him, but also to suffer for his sake. That's a promise. So what should we do when you and I experience suffering for being Christians? Well, I'll tell you. No, I'll let the Lord tell you. It's in Matthew chapter 5, verse 12. Rejoice and be glad. I didn't say this. These are the Lord's words. I'm just reading it. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward in heaven is great, for in the same way they persecuted the prophets who were before you. This is what we should do when persecuted for our connection to Christ and for our devotion to Christ. We should, according to the words of the Lord, we should rejoice and be glad. When I read that, I asked the question out loud, why? But look closely at the verse and you'll see two reasons. One, your reward in heaven is great. Now, I really wanted to know more about that, and I didn't get it. That's the thing about the Bible. It doesn't tell you everything you want to know. It tells you everything you need to know. 
I don't know the specific nature of the rewards that are promised when we experience persecution for identification. with I don't know what they are. All I know is it says right there, Jesus' words. Rejoice and be glad when you experience persecution for my sake, because your reward in heaven will be great. And second, in the same way they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Oh, boy. When you get persecuted for Christ, you take it personally. But it should never be that way. You're being persecuted for Christ. You have nothing to do with it. It's not about you. And this verse tells me, oh, my goodness, I'm in quite an exclusive group. The same thing that may be happening to me was experienced by the great prophets of old who I hold in high esteem, whose words we study when we read the Bible and all that kind of stuff. It's as if God is saying, come on now, you're not alone. This is the shared experience of all of my kids in every age, those who are unashamed of me and who identify with me. So now as we draw to a close, I want to bring up Lazarus just for a few more minutes of your time. Lazarus. I don't think Lazarus, after he experienced resurrection from the dead, uh, was ever thought of from that point on merely as Lazarus. I think he was thought of with a kind of a comma after his name, kind of like this, not just Lazarus, but Lazarus, comma, whom Christ raised from the dead. That is forever how people referred to Lazarus. Hey, Lazarus, how's it going? No. Aren't you Lazarus, comma, whom Jesus raised from the dead? That's it. And I want to tell you something, my fellow Christians. That's how we are supposed to be known. What do you mean? Well, you and I were dead in our transgressions. That's what the scriptures say. I mean, dead. What does that mean? I mean, totally unable to do anything spiritually beneficial. Totally unable to have any meaningful fellowship, communion, and relationship with Almighty God, who is spirit. Spiritually dead. Could not clean up our act. Could not manifest a pattern of holy, Christ-honoring deeds. Didn't even have a desire to do it. Spiritually dead. That's what the Bible says. Dead in our transgressions. And then we were quickened, made alive, in no less a sensational way than was Lazarus. His was a physical healing, but our spiritual healing, being raised up from spiritual death to vibrant life with Christ is no less a miraculous intervention, no less a function of the master's touch based on our faith and invitation of him to do so. Folks, we were as dead as Lazarus was. And suddenly we were made alive just like, just like he was. And so... Our names are different now. I'm going to say something, not arrogantly, but confidently. Listen, listen. Uh, I am Stuart, comma, whom Christ raised from the dead. Why don't you try, have a try at it? If you're a Christian, just repeat after me. Would you just say, I am? If you're a Christian, I am. Put in your name. Now, I am. Comma, whom Jesus raised from the dead. So you know what that makes you? Blessed and also evidence which some want to destroy. Therefore, don't be surprised at the fiery ordeal which comes upon you for your testing. 
for all those who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will experience some form of persecution, verbal or physical. That's just the way it is. When you say, I am someone, comma, whom Jesus raised from the dead, those who are running from Jesus, who want to deny his existence, his claim on their life, his ultimate authority, those who are on the run from Jesus want to snuff out the evidence and you be evidence. But what you say, I didn't say anything. You don't have to. Neither did Lazarus. He wasn't a great or All he did was lived. He was dead, now he's alive. I remember the first time I went home after being made alive by Jesus. I left the military. I went home on leave. I was at home for, I don't know, two days or something. My mother said to me, you're different. I didn't even know what she was talking about at the time. I want to know how Jesus can make you a new creature and someone doesn't notice it. I reflected back on it years after to try to figure out how did my mother come to that conclusion? I might have told you this. I stumbled upon a brilliant evangelistic technique. I took out the garbage without being told. <laughs> Apparently, that is something I had never done previously. And so that got my mother to take note and say, you're different. I want to know how the Alpha and Omega, the king of all kings, the one who has no beginning nor any end, the one who is the agent of creation, having spoken it into existence in the power of his word, uh, the one who is seated on the throne to receive worship from every kindred, tribe, and tongue. I want to know how that one can inhabit your life and it not show. Your evidence. There's a comma after your name. I am somebody whom Jesus has raised from the dead. And if you are, you're just like Lazarus, walking around alive from the dead. And some people are going to want to snuff out the evidence. That's you. This explains persecution of Christians. Now, folks, this unbelievable, gracious bestowal of new life given to us freely by the grace of God contingent upon our faith, this inexpressible gift so far exceeds any persecution which comes our way as to make it pale in comparison. Nobody needs to invite it, but don't run from it. What we have in Christ far exceeds anything we're going to receive from worldly people who want to snuff out the evidence. I was a new Christian years ago, and I, uh, I used to oftentimes, uh, I had a hymn book, and I would take it with me out into the woods and meet alone with God. I would sometimes sing the hymns. I found it scared the birds away. And, uh, uh, and so I'd read the hymns. You know, some of the words are just unbelievable. And so there was this hymn. I remember when I was a young Christian, I bet you know it. And can it be that I should gain an interest in the Savior's blood died he for me who caused his pain, who him to death pursued. And then there's his words, amazing love. How can it be that thou, my God, shouldst die for me? We don't have to invite Christian persecution, but don't seek to avoid it by denying Jesus and your outward public expression of love and devotion, faithfulness to him, 
your witness to others with regard to what he longs to do for them, don't do that in order to avoid a negative, a possible negative reaction. Don't do that. Look at his amazing love. Look what he suffered so that you and I could become his now and forevermore. Don't do it. Listen, my fellow Christians, let's live for Jesus. And then if we must, let's die for Jesus. Knowing all along great glory and great reward awaits us in heaven. We're grateful, Lord Jesus, that you unashamedly have entered into union with us. Oh, God, perish the thought that we would in any way be ashamed of declaring our union to you. Oh, God in heaven, the same message of faith in Christ leading to forgiveness of sin, eternal life and adoption into your family, that message is going to soften some hearts and harden others, and that's not up to us. Oh, God, put it within us. Overcome, overcome, not so much by compulsion, but by a willingness to tell people about you in light of the cost, in light of what it costs you to redeem us. No God in this day of crazy things being said in even high places in this country and all others, when people are espousing all kinds of nonsense, how dare we? Be quiet about truth, truth that transforms. And can it be that we should gain an interest in the Savior's blood? Oh, God, put it within us to share that message, to live out our lives in such a way that's consistent with that message. It'll be a blessing, oh, God, and even if we suffer for it, so what? We will then share in the fellowship of your sufferings. And for this, we thank you. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. God bless you.